Good morning, everyone. My name is Keith. I'm going to take your music, yeah. <laughs> I'm the leading teaching pastor here at Grassroots, and it's uh, my privilege to give you a warm welcome this morning. It's great to see everyone here. Uh, if you're new at Grassroots today, a warm welcome to you. If you missed the announcement earlier, there's a lunch uh, today for you after church. We have a monthly Discover Grassroots lunch, which is for anyone who's new or newish to Grassroots who wants to find out a bit more about what's going on here. So lunch is free. You can pop in, ask any questions. Uh, softballs, hardballs, I'll take any question. Um, and uh, great, it would be great to meet you. A uh, special warm welcome to a few longtime friends of mine who are here. Uh, they were first my parents' friends, um, and I've known them for a very long time, and they were camping in Grand Marais. Uh, so they've made a special trip to see me and my family today and, and worship with us. So welcome, guys, and uh, it's great to have you here. Um, so we've been spending a year, well, not a year so far, but we will have spent a year by the end of this sermon series on praying. Uh, well, we're in the book of the Psalms, which is an Old Testament book, um, 150 prayers uh, written by ancient people from the, the Jewish and Israelite world. We've been studying them. We've been studying God's presence, how he's close with us, uh, and the life of prayer. And my challenge and my hope is that by the end of this year, I don't know if it will be 42, 52 sermons, we'll see. Uh, but by the end of the year, you will be able to say, because I've gone through this process, because as a church we've gone through this, my prayer life is a bit deeper. It's a bit more established. The habit of turning my attention in my hectic, responsibility-filled life, of turning my attention fully to the Father for refreshing, for listening, uh, is grow, has grown, has deepened. Uh, and so... Um, I think we're about six, six sermons in, so if you're new, you're, just, you're not too late. Uh, and the, uh, most, I think all of the sermons so far are on the, on the web, so you can catch up on the podcast in that way. Um, by now, though, at Sermon 7, you should be feeling a little inkling to want to pray. That's my hope. If, you, if you're feeling a bit of a growing, burning, like, yeah, I should, I should be praying in my life, or I want to pray better, then great. If, it's kind of like this. I, I feel like I've been sort of treading in the deep end of a community swimming pool, and I've been saying, come on, jump in, let's go. We're going to learn how to swim laps. We're going to get fit. We're going we're gonna to learn how to pray. But the first phase of it all is just getting everyone in the pool. And so uh, if you are in the pool waiting water, say, yeah, okay, I'm in, Keith. Now start teaching me how to pray. That'll come. That's coming. Uh, but if you're sort of kind of shivering on the side, which is okay if you are, there's no shame there. Uh, if you're shivering on the side, we need to jump in. This is a further invitation. Come on in. Jump in. We're learning how to swim. We're learning how to pray together as a church. So um, if, if that's where you're at, um, that's okay. If, if you're kind of um, huddled in a towel on a bench far away going, I hate this. I'm not getting in. Um, it's going to be a while for you. <laughs> uh, we're going to be on this, this prayer topic for a while. And if that's where you're at, and that's okay too, there's no shame there either. But if that's where you find yourself in the midst of this, I just wanted to give you an invitation to search uh, your heart. Um, and this isn't me saying if you're not interested in this, then it's, it's your fault. <laughs> I'm saying that if, if, if we're not interested in growing in prayer, and turning our heart to the Father and learning how to do that better and better in our life, then it's probably because there's a point of pain in your life. Something that is, is making you go, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to take one step towards that pool because someone threw me in early in my life. Or I almost drowned once. Or you know what, I, I, um, I just I hate everything about the idea of swimming. Prayer. If that's you, that's okay. But my invitation is to search yourself. Go home. Um, 
start a journal, find that place of pain that's making you not want to sort of make a move. Because uh, it's that point of pain, I believe, where, where God will meet you. And if you're, if you're searching there, if you're searching for that point of pain, it's, you're already praying. It's already a prayer. So uh, just to, this is orienting us to where we're at, uh, where we're going as a church. Um, and the first, the first general point of it all, um, you know, I, I haven't gotten into any of the great prayers of the scriptures other than the Psalms. I haven't gotten into the prayer techniques. I we'll, we'll all get there. We'll get to the, the kind of the school of prayer, so to speak. Um, but the first thing that we have to do is get ourselves praying. If you're, if you're, if you're um, treading water in the deep end, the, the first idea is we're just getting our muscles here activated. And in your life, my invitation so far has been find the anxieties, find the places of pain, find the responsibilities, find the things that your mind is dwelling upon, and learn how to turn them to God. This isn't, there's no right words in this way. There's no right prayer posture. There's no right formula. It's you and God having a conversation. And I love Michelangelo's little finger here uh, as he pointed. And, and if you know this uh, painting on the top of the Sistine Chapel, this is God creating Adam. And God is on the right-hand side. And I love this because his finger is stretched out almost as far as it could go, reaching uh, for humanity. And Adam is kind of waking up slowly kind of with this little unimpressed posture of the hand. He's not sure yet who this God is or if he wants to touch this God. Uh, and so, of course, that's the, how it all began way back in the book of Genesis. But this is perpetually our posture of waking up, coming to life over and over again, recognizing God is close to us, stretching himself towards us. And we oftentimes find ourselves in this sort of disinterested, uh, maybe I'll touch him, maybe not. And to begin the life of prayer is just a stretch of a finger, it's just the desire to say, I'm going to turn my life to you with, over and over again. That's where it all starts. That's where the muscles of prayer begin. And so in order to do this, we have to, to uh, bring our hearts constantly to God. But that's not just where, uh, it doesn't just begin with us is what I'm what I'm saying. It doesn't, it doesn't just begin with us trying on our own to do this. One of the other places this begins is to pray with people. Pray with people who know how to pray. Pray with people who are praying. Uh, if you want to get a prayer life going, don't just have a conversation with God alone. Find people to pray with. This is kind of step two in, um, in, in the prayer life. And so that's where we have been for the last three weeks. And so we're kind of in a mini little series right now. Of the, and this is the last one on praying with people, praying with others, and the importance of figuring out how to, to pray with one another in order to develop and kickstart our life of prayer. Uh, and so last week, uh, I talked about praying with kids and praying with children and um, how important that is. And for those of you who have kids, uh, how important it is for them to pray and how important it is for you to pray with them. It's one way to keep praying with other, others. Um, this week, we're talking about praying with spouses. And um, let's see. We're talking about praying together, praying with spouses. Um, Praying with your spouse, if you have one, is uh, not only the, the glue that is meant to hold that relationship together, but praying with your spouse is also the, the, the thing that you desperately need in order to take your marriage to a place where you're reflecting God's love. That's where I'm going today. Now, before I get there, before, did I write that out? 
No. Um, I didn't write that out. Uh, before I get there this morning, I want to just give a little bit of a, of a, a note of honor. Because uh, today in this room, there are people who are coming from all sorts of places. There are people, a lot of people have spouses in the room, or, or not in the room, but they might have a spouse. Uh, there are people here who aren't married and have never been married. There are people who aren't married but have once been married. There are people who have been married uh, but their spouse has died and they're a, a widow. Uh, and there are people who uh, want to get married and, and have been longing to get married but perhaps haven't found the right partner. And there are people here today that may get married in the future. So I'm kind of like in a pastoral minefield. <laughs> I know that as I'm, as I'm approaching this this morning. Um, and I just wanted to make a few points before, before I proceeded because um, I know that talking about praying with your spouses can uh, be a, a point of pain for everyone across the board. I mean, I'm entering into pain everywhere in, in this. Uh, but the, the thing that I want to do today is, is this. Um, for those of you especially who uh, aren't married, for whatever reason, it's you haven't, you're not old enough yet, you uh, have given it a go and it hasn't worked out, uh, you're trying to find someone. For anyone who's not married today, I wanted to honor you and to say that um, one of the most beautiful things about Christianity is this, is that when Jesus came, he uh, was a single man and he never married and he, uh, what he did is he also elevated up out of obscurity people who would follow him who weren't married to other people, which means this. In that day and age, in Jesus' day and age, it was a common thing to get married, and, um, and people would have expected that of Jesus. But also, um, he drew followers in a very unexpected way, which is, you know, uh, as, as a woman, especially in the ancient world, if you didn't have a husband to take care of you and to sort of uh, kind of cover over you, you were kind of a social outcast. This is someone who the world didn't understand. But in Jesus' way, in his kingdom among his people, he elevated up, especially the women of the day, and said, um, you do not have to have a man in your life to have worth. You do not have to have a partner in your life to have a sense of being worthy. Uh, you are a daughter of God, a son of God, without anyone else. And, um, and so... Uh, as, as a pastor, I've walked alongside of many people who are single uh, and kind of working through the, their, their singleness. And it's never okay. Like, don't, don't hear me wrong. I'm not, um, I'm not diminishing your desires. Your desires to be married or, and have a healthy um, marriage is a good one. Uh, um, and and it's the, it's, there's no consolation in the fact that you are, um, you are in the economy of the king, which means you have an identity without being married. Um, but across the board, what I'm saying is this. As a community, we honor you where you're at. It's not an easy place. It's not a, 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 it's not a culturally easy place. And a lot of times in Christian churches, you'll hear um, kind of rhetoric like, well, until you're married, or when you're married, or uh, when, you know, when the day comes that you're with a spouse. Uh, and you'll, you'll hear none of that here. Uh, in, in the Christian economy, it's you and your relationship with God which forms the center, whether you're single or married. Now, that being said, um, as, I, as I honor you today, um, I'm trying to give some, uh, some instruction to those who are married. And if you're not married, maybe you will be married at some point, and this stuff will um, uh, kind of be um, relevant to you. So, but I'm, gonna go, I'm just going to go uh, delve straight in to praying with spouses today for the many who are 
are, um, have their spouse with them. And so, uh, as, we, as we do so, the, and we, we look towards the Psalms, there is no Psalms tradition, really, about the wisdom about being married. You might think, well, if I'm married and I have a spouse and I need some help in learning how to pray with them or learning how to be married, you don't look to the Psalms. There's not really anything in there ab- about that. You can look to Proverbs. You can look to the teachings of Paul. You can look all over the place. Uh, but there does happen to be, well, I guess if you're married, there is this one Psalm. Even my close friend, someone I trusted on who shared my bread has turned against me. <laughs> if you're having marriage problems, there's plenty of prayers in the Psalms for you. Um, you know, and of course, this is the one Jesus came to and was echoing when, when Judas had betrayed him. Um, but there is one psalm among all the 150, Psalm 45, and it's for lovers. It's a psalm written for a wedding, a royal wedding, the wedding of a king. Uh, and I believe in it, uh, as we dig into Psalm 45, we'll find everything we need to enter into the, the biblical teaching on the life of being married. Uh, And so here we go. Psalm 45. Let's jump in now. It starts like this. To the leader according to lilies of the Kohorites, a maskal, a love song. And each one of these things is like I could spend some time on the ancient Jewish practice of psalm writing. I'll just skip by that. This is just kind of saying who wrote the psalm and what kind of psalm it is. And it's ultimately a love song. And it begins like this. My heart overflows with a goodly theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. So this is someone who has been commissioned to write a poem for a royal wedding. And they begin like this. I'm going to give this my all. This is going to be my greatest work of art to write about this wedding. And I'm going to, I'm going to give it to the king as a wedding present. And within this, I believe, if we're paying attention, if we're paying attention to this psalm, in this, the psalm's in here not because it's a good sort of thing to think about a royal wedding, but there's, there's sort of a, a mystery in this. If we're paying attention, there's a snapshot that, the, that the, whoever collected the psalms together is saying, there's something true and important about God in this psalm. So here we go. I'm going to read it in full. You are the most handsome of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your glory and majesty. In your majesty, ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and to defend the right. Let your right hand achieve renown. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, endures forever and ever. Your royal scepter is a scepter of equity. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. So a lot of words to say, king, we rejoice in you. We're we're honoring you, king, in your royal wedding. And we can think of maybe King David or King Solomon or some of his sons having received this psalm on their wedding day. We honor you, king of the Jews. It goes on now to focus his attention on the queen. Hear, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. 
Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts. The richest of the people will, with all kinds of wealth. The princess is decked in her chamber with gold woven robes. And I love this because now it's gone from this overarching sort of um, view of this royal wedding to this one moment. And I believe it's this one moment in the wedding that the psalmist is asking us to pay attention to. It's the moment where the queen, as the, the future queen, is in her chamber ready to walk out to be married. It's the moment right before she turns in and sees the whole community of people waiting to receive her. She's adorned in beauty. Perhaps she has her father at her side. And she's about to make the turn out of this chamber and in among the people. And it's a snapshot. Click. And we should pay attention because this is what the psalmist is trying to say. Where am I at? The princess is ducked in her chambers with gold woven robes. In many colored robes, she is led to the king. Behind her, the virgins, her companions follow with joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. Snapshot. In the place of ancestors, you, O king, shall have the sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be celebrated in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will praise you forever. So it's a royal psalm, a psalm about a wedding, praising the king and a hope for victory. But it's not just any king, right? It's, uh, oh, here's the moment, the snapshot. I forgot to put a picture on. We'll dwell on that for a minute. It's not, it's not just any king. It's the righteous king. See, look, the majesty, ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and defend the right. Let your right hand achieve renown. Um, your scepter is a scepter of equity. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. So many kings of the world are not this, aren't they? They're not a, a wise king who's going to love righteousness and uh, hate wickedness and achieve renown because they're, they're defending the truth and right things. So many kings are out there just for their own good, right? For their own um, glory. Uh, and you can hear beginning ringing. And the, the Psalms are written before Jesus' time. You can begin here ringing the hope in Israel for a future king. Someone who would come and lead them on with truth and righteousness and equity. Someone who will look at every single person in his kingdom and see worth in them to defend. And the early Christians knew that this king hadn't come, come yet. And as Jesus rose up and as Jesus began uh, his ministry and everything he was doing from the healing to his preaching to his drawing um, the, 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 the forces of good to his side, Everything was beginning to ring in the ears of the Jews of his day who would have known this psalm. Uh, so this is, a, this is a good king, uh, someone who was going to be fair and just and wise. And so how, how, does, how does this snapshot work um, of, of, the, of the queen, the princess coming in? It says that she comes in with joy and gladness. In this snapshot, we see joy and we see gladness overflowing. We see the beauty of the torch being passed from one generation to the next. And it's not just the beauty of a torch being passed on from one generation of kingship, but what they're doing is they're perpetuating the memory of God and humanity. Um, how does this work again? Yeah, 
I will cause your name, this is the final verse of the psalm, I will cause your name to be celebrated in all generations and the peoples will praise you forever and ever. It's a snapshot, not just about a wedding, but, a, but about a way of living in which God's memory is passed on from one generation to the next. Uh, humanity will not forget God because of this community of people who decides to pass it on. And you get a glimmer, I believe, uh, in the, of a treasure and what can be a bloody and muddy experience on life and earth. Here's what I mean by that. Um, life is hard. <laughs> life is messy. Relationships are messy. In that moment of, of joy and gladness, how long in a marriage does that last? It's just it, it, not very long. And, 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 and it, doesn't, it, it dies. It can't, it can't go on if it's not nurtured. And so this, joy, this moment of joy and gladness uh, is a moment where uh, God says, in the midst of the messiness of this life, there's a treasure, there's something beautiful, something to be um, found worthy. And if you're going through life, if you're in the mud and the blood of life, and especially in the mud and the blood of marriage, and you're in the trenches, and you've forgotten that there's hope, and you've forgotten that there's a God who's with you, this psalm is taking a snapshot to say, don't forget the treasure. This royal wedding is a symbol of the treasure which God is in the midst of our uh, sometimes awful life. There's joy and gladness to be found in life. Uh, and so, uh, as we dig deeper in, uh, this psalm is connecting. It's, it's connecting in various points with the great biblical tradition on marriage. And the great biblical tradition on marriage is this. God is a God who has betrothed his people. His people are a wife to him, a spouse to him, but they do not stay faithful. And even so, he stays faithful nonetheless. If you, we can switch the metaphor around. God, it doesn't work like this in the scriptures, but just here in this day and age, God is our, is our, uh, is our spouse. And humanity, his people were like his husband who went astray and wandered and looked all over the place in the world for, for uh, satisfaction. But God stayed there nonetheless and stayed faithful. God is, a, God is like a, a husband in the Old Testament and the people are like a bride. And so when, when the early Christians started talking about Jesus being the bride or Jesus being the spouse and um, the church being the bride, I mean, Jesus told a couple of psalms where he was the bridegroom and his people were the bride. He's picking up on this tradition. And they begin to recognize it's not just God that we're, as a community, betrothing. It's this mysterious three-person God, and Jesus is part of that. So at the very end of the book of the Bible in Revelation, at the very end, you get a great marriage ceremony, a great wedding where we as the people have been washed clean of our impurities, and we as the people become a bride and marry the Lamb and marry God. And so marriage, says the Apostle Paul, Marriage isn't just about two people coming together to have satisfying relationship where they can um, have a bit of pleasure and try to hold on. Marriage is something much higher than that, much more sacred. It's a symbol and a snapshot itself of God's relationship with his people. So as we do marriage, as we go about uh, being betrothed to our spouses, we do it in a way that recognizes there's something higher about us being married than us simply having a good life. We are reflecting God somehow to the world around us. So marriage is one of the clearest windows into God's heart. 
And a marriage which then ends up reflecting Christ's love is God's heart in 3D. Like you can really see God in a marriage which is reflected in Christ. Now, I, I know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm treading on points of pain here because uh, in marriage we have two flesh becoming one. We have a reflection of God's love for humans. This is a high calling. It's a high, high calling where there's absence of hostility. There's a depth of respect for one another. And there's a deep love. And... Um, you know, I'm right, I'm right with you in the trenches to say that that's not always how marriage feels. Being, being, being in a marriage doesn't always feel like that. Uh, it can oftentimes be disappointed, uh, disappointing. Uh, we can have chilling, one author put it, we have chilling resignation. You know what? I, I, had, I began with high hopes. There was that moment where, of the glimmer and there was joy and gladness. And yet it all fell apart. And it's not, it doesn't feel like that. And so I've resigned myself. I'm disappointed. I've, I've withdrawn. And um, you, um, you, you can either do one or two things in this posture. You can say, well, I'm just going to resign myself to, to survive this relationship. Or I'm going, I have to leave it. I've got to abandon it. And there's no, there's no other choices when you're in the chilling resignation, disappointed in the withdrawing. And the, the hard part of this is, to me, is this the, um, you know, the quality of your life and the quality of our lives are dependent upon our relationships. If we're living in a relationship, in a marriage that is anything but the reflection of the high calling, um, we... Um, our quality of life, our ability to enjoy life is not going to be there. So as I'm speaking, I'm speaking with you because there have been, you know, we, even I've had moments where we've had marital bliss and, and, and high points, but it's been much more in the trenches. And there have been, there have been the moments where you go, is this even going to last? Can I even go through this? Um, and, and part of the being disappointed is the fact that deep inside of us, we know there should be something more, should be something higher and deeper. And so... Um, here's what we have to do. I'm going to just sort of give us some, some teaching this morning. Folks have been wanting me to do a marriage series for some time. This is just whetting your appetite on some, um, some advice, some inspiration about how to move from a place of chilled resignation in this high calling to a place where you are finding yourselves not just reflecting the image of God in your marriage, but you are um, finding this, this higher love within it. Now, we'll do, it, we'll do a whole series on this sometime and a retreat. And if, you, if, if, if right now I'm stirring something in you that's like, okay, Keith, this needs to be addressed before then. If you're at a place of, of hardship, you got to let me know. I'm, I'll be there to help. There's a community around you to help you. Um, but I want to give a, a, some, a bit of an initial snapshot in, into um, and how, to, how to move from a place of resignation to a place where you're once again doing this thing which is reflecting the higher love. And I'll say it like this. There's, I've read a lot of marriage books. I've talked with a lot of people who are experts on this. And there's two important things to say at this point. The first one is um, two very, very incompatible people uh, can find their way out of gridlock. Incom incompatible people in gridlock can find their way out. It happens. It's a lot of work. Um, but if your life is just constantly 
tanked by uh, a sense of, of resignation, the quality of your life is ruined because of your marriage relationship, you need, to, you need to just push the pause button and you need to work on it. You need to get out of gridlock. It, it takes two people. It, it can happen. There's, you're, there, you're, um, there, there is hope for you. Um, even I have been in gridlock many times and, um, and the greatest marriage uh, counselors out there let, tell you that there's hope for you. The second thing to say is that if your car is out of gas, don't go get a new car. Don't go trash your car. You fill the tank up, right? That's, that's, that's the baseline of where we go to sort of getting out of gridlock. We don't just trash the car because it's out of gas. We fill it up. And here's how we fill it up. Well, I'm getting to this, but prayer is an essential piece. Uh, I'll get there. But here, we have to become soul friends first. Uh, we have to be in a relationship that, that needs to be nurtured. We need to have respect for one another. There needs to be an absence of control, and there needs to be dialogue. This is what it means to invest in a marriage um, for these three points. And ultimately, um, each person in the marriage needs to feel these four things to, to reach these lofty ideals. To be safe, to be seen, to feel secure, and to be soothed. These are, are, are the things which um, begin to make a marriage uh, reflecting the higher way. But you have to become soul friends first. And it's a very, very very long road, but it's, it's straightforward. It's not easy, but it's straightforward. I'll, I'll go into this here um, just a little more in a minute. Um, but, but let me talk about these things one by one. Um, a relationship has to be filled with respect. Now, when some people, when they think about marriage, they think, okay, it's two flesh becoming one. And what can happen, it happen so it happens sometimes, oftentimes it happens that um, it's two individuals who have their unique, awesome identities alighting into one another, and they begin meshing. And they, they begin no longer to become two individuals, becoming um, two individuals standing on their two feet in a relationship. But one person takes on the character traits of another, and they become uh, in need of one another to sort of have their sense of identity established. And you, be, you, you get into this thing called um, fusion. Marriage therapists call it fusion, in which you, you sort of lose your identity. You lose your sense of personhood, and you give it up in order to make this thing work. And when you've done that, you're in a dysfunctional position. Uh, for a marriage to work, one person has to respect the difference of a, another person. They have to see another person as, as a distinct entity, as a distinct human being. They don't belong to you, and you don't belong to them. You're in a mutual relationship um, of respect. And so uh, there's um, separateness. Uh, I don't know if any of you have done the Enneagram work, um, but it's these personality tests. If, if you want to sort of make sure that you guys are respecting the individuality of the other, take the Enneagram test. Do it. I, I would suggest it. Because, because we go through life thinking people are very much like us. We, we, we see our own image in them. Uh, take the Enneagram test. Uh, recognize, be, become, a, become a scholar, become a student of who your spouse is, what, what their personality is like, how they function, how they click, how they tick. It's part of respect. Um, Secondly, this is like each point is like I could spend months on each of these. Uh, but this is the basis, the basis of soul friendships. Uh, it's the absence of control. Secondly, uh, any form of manipulation 
any form of coercion of trying to get your spouse to do something is, uh, is a controlling feature. And we can get into this um, in, in, in great amounts of depth because when we get married, oftentimes we get married in order for someone else to fulfill something in us. Um, we, we want them to be someone for us, right? We want them to perform a role for us of some sort. Uh, and so um, if, there, if there is any coercion, if there's any sense of you're not giving something to me, so I'm going to try to get it out of you. Um, if there's any type of that, we're, we're, we're in this gridlock of control. Um, so, you know, you may have plans for your spouse of who you want them to be. Of, of, the, uh, of the dysfunctions in their life that you know need to go. You, you can turn them into a project and make them sort of try to, try to turn them into someone who you think they should be. Or you can let go of that completely and put that into God's hands. And this is probably one of the biggest keys to a relationship that works, is ceasing making a project out of your spouse, letting them be who they're going to be, taking a step back and walking alongside of them journeying alongside of them instead of trying to shape them into an image of something. Now, as a spouse, you're going to have the closest front, front, um, front row seat to the sin of another human being. You know, as, if you're married to someone, you got, you're going to have the closest view of their problems, probably more than even they know. Right? Uh, and it's, isn't it tempting to try to make them our project? Okay, I'm going to work on this. But, but the way that relationships work and the way that God works is he is a wise and smart God. And he works on people and he uh, challenges people and he grows people and he takes them through situations which change things about them. But sometimes, you know, I think, like, I think of like this metaphor. Sometimes it's like our, as human beings, um, we, we have this, let's say, this river of life which represents the soul. And there's these cliffs on the edge of our soul. And sometimes the cliffs collapse. And the dam gets formed. And as human beings, we stop flowing. And we get sort of in these, in these spiraling postures of addiction and brokenness. Um, and sometimes we can go, okay, how are we going to fix this? How are, things, how are we going to get this water flowing again? And we can look and we say, well, there's a massive boulder right in the middle of this thing. Let's take our axe picks and work at it and take it away and get that boulder gone because if that boulder's gone, the river will flow again. But here's how God works. He's smart, smarter than us. He sees the exact point on which all of the weight of the rocks rest and he works there. And it may be the most counterintuitive spot, but he's there chipping away and working. And our job is to figure out where he's working and join him there. And if you are, if God is working on your spouse in a place, in a, in a little rock where all the rest wait, and you're there chipping away at their big boulder that's in front, that's stopping their life, there's the, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders work in vain. This was last week's psalm. Um, stop making your spouse your project. Um, let there be some distance and have an absence of control. And I will take a moment here just because I have you captive. You can't go anywhere. Um, to say, to say if, if you're in a relationship where you feel in any way that you are being abused, to where someone has, is, is coercing you and hurting you and manipulating you in any way, 
uh, please come forward. That doesn't, that doesn't um, mean that your relationship with them is over. That doesn't mean that the, the church is going to um, uh, stand up and sort of make things public. No, we have, we've been trained enough. I've been trained enough to know how to listen and walk alongside of you. Because if you're with, in a covenant relationship with a manipulator and someone who doesn't know how to do anything but control, they can heal. They can find healing. But they need help. And it's a long road. And, and as a community, we're here to walk together through that. If you're experiencing abuse, especially violence, but emotional abuse, spiritual abuse, um, physical abuse, any, none of the, this has any place in a relationship, in a marriage relationship. So, um, yeah, that's just, a, that's just to take a stand to say that there is, um, there's no room for abuse. And if you're in a, a coercive relationship and you need help, ask for help. Find help. We're here. The community's here. Um, so to get to this place of this high calling of marriage, uh, we have to have respect for one another, absence of control, and there has to be dialogue. Dialogue and talking with one another is, is the, uh, the key to getting out of gridlock. Now, getting safe, seen, secure, and soothed. Now, it's a lofty goal, I understand, but this is what we're called to as we reflect God's image. Now, to get, some, to get a little more focused here about prayer, I've been trying to get to this point to say that in order to build this kind of relationship, you need prayer. You need to have a prayer life together. The great books about marriage and Christian marriage talk about this. you got to pray with your spouse. Now, I, have a, I had a seminary, seminary professor who was married for 20 years and he says he can't pray with his wife because there's just so much gridlock and so much, so many issues. Um, and here, here's the thing, the reason why, because prayer can be the most intimate thing that you do with a spouse. I believe that praying with a spouse feels more intimate than sex can feel. I'll just say it. Because you can give your body to someone but keep your heart closed off. But you cannot give your heart to someone, in, or you cannot pray with someone without giving your heart to them. Uh, and so, first of all, if, if you can't pray with your spouse, if it's scary, if, there, if it's, you go into emotional overload every time you try, um, there are other ways than direct praying together. And, and, but, but also, this is to say, if, if you're not married yet, and you're praying with someone of the opposite gender alone, recognize that you're doing something um, that it could be possibly the most intimate thing that two human beings can do. And so I would, I would advise you to pray in groups. Um, so, um, so, but, but prayer, it's, it's powerful. It's the thing which holds marriage together, and it's the thing which helps elevate us out of gridlock. Because when you're praying with someone, um, it's like, I put it this way, it disarms the propensity to turn against one another. My experience is, is when I'm praying with Eve, and, and we, we're in a place of gridlock or where I haven't seen her in a while or we haven't communicated well for a while. And I'm starting to turn against her and sort of get bitter and hostile. And all these things are growing in me. If we pray together, I've experienced this dozens of times. I begin to see her for who she really is. When I see her heart of compassion, praying for our children or praying for the world around her, I go, oh, okay, I've been doing that again. Um, prayer together grows the compassion that we need to keep on growing in marriage. Uh, but prayer also is a beautiful way to understand your spouse uh, feels cared for or to, to, to care for your spouse. So when Eve prays for me, it's the, one of the, the greatest things she can do to make me feel like she's on my team, on my side. 
and, and we've, we, we, we haven't been great prayers together. Um, Eve's, a, Eve's a wonderful prayer. I'm, I'm getting there um, slowly and awkwardly. Um, but um, there have been moments of emotional intensity, and we haven't always figured that out. And just, just recently, we've been married 11 years. 11, right? 11 years, we'll say that. Um, we've been married 11 years. Um, and we're just beginning to learn how, before I run out the door in the morning, taking an extra five minutes to pray together. To say, uh, I'm going to pray for you, pray for your day, pray for me. And it's, it's, it's rich enriching, it's beautiful, it's essential, it's the glue of our, of our marriage that, um, that we're just figuring out how to use. Um, so, again, there's no right way to pray. There's no right words. It's sitting down with someone, hearing their thoughts, hearing them out, and guess what? When you're hearing their prayer requests, when you're hearing what they need prayer for, you're beginning the dialogue that can often be so damned up in a relationship. Have the dialogue. What's happening with you? What's going on in your heart? Let me pray for you. Uh, it's, it's essential. Um, some tips before I close. Um, you need, to spend some, you need to spend weekly quality time together in a relationship that has any hope of reflecting God's love to the world. Spend some time at least once a week turning everything off, turning the phones off, looking eye to eye, and hearing how the other person's doing. Because you, you're becoming first, you're becoming friends. You're becoming people who are, um, are there with each other. Have one sacred evening a week and go on a date, be, be together, uh, pray together. Drive on holiday. I like this one because some, oftentimes we can just rush from our destinations. But, but uh, I've known many people, especially who are developed and older in years, and they've testified to the fact that they've, drive, they've driven together hundreds of thousands of kilometers across the world. And somehow when you're in a little box that's going 90K, magic happens. Um, drive on holiday and talk to one another. Laughter. Laugh together. Don't, whatever you do, don't abandon dialogue. Go on guided retreats. Send your spouse on a, on a guided retreat alone with, or, or, or with a group and have them, and then afterwards sit with them and ask them, how did that go? What did, what did God say to you? Um, how can I pray for you? Uh, but at the bottom line of this all, friends, as we've sort of delved just very deep from one psalm into the theology of marriage and into some of this, these practicalities, the only way for this to happen is to start praying. Pray with one another. Find spot to give your messy, half-articulated, uh, confused thoughts. Share them with one another and pray for one another. And I guarantee you that prayer will enrich and help you get out of this often, often gridlock that we can be in. Um, if, if you need help with this, just this last call out. If you need help, email me. Let me know. There are plen- if, if, if I have the time to help, I will. If there's plenty of people here who understand how to make marriage um, work, and we can, we can help you. Um, but in the midst of this, as, as I close down, we're actually closing down a, a bit of a chapter of our prayer series, which is to say, if it's going to work, if we're going to get to learning how to be great swimmers, you got to get in the pool, you got to start praying, give your heart over to God in a hundred different ways, a dozen times a day, whatever, when, you, when you're feeling stressed, give that to him. When you're feeling sp- stressed, if you have a spouse, give that to your spouse, have them pray for you. Just got to gotta get going. That's step one. And, um, and if at this point, you know, you're feeling like, okay, tell me more. I want to learn how to pray. Well, this is where we're going. And uh, for the next four weeks, we're going to be talking specifically about the barriers. What are the major things that prevent us from praying? 
What are the things that actually stand in our way? What are the big dams in the, in the, in the boulders, the boulders in, in our, in our um, rivers, so to speak? So come on back and we'll, uh, we'll keep going. Well, in the meantime, I've, I've given you a lot today. I've challenged you with a lot. And I've, I know that I've been at places of pain. Um, and so we have this final practice that we do every week that Jesus teaches us to do. The one who put himself in the deepest level of pain for us. The one, the one through whom we can finally have access again to the Father. Um, this practice he gives us to take a bit of bread that symbolizes his body and dip it in, in, in wine, which is juice here, which symbolizes his, his blood shed for us. Um, do it weekly in order to not just um, to be fed spiritually, but to bring our places of pain to him. If I've hit on a place of pain today and you need God to meet you there, you have two more songs uh, this morning to, to dip in uh, some bread and uh, to ask him to minister to you. It's a wonderful way to say, God, here's this place of pain. I'm feeling it. I'm stuck. I'm hurt. I'm opening my heart to you. It's a great moment to do that. Um, or if God is saying something else to you, if he's said something completely irrelevant to what I've been trying to say today, whatever it is that he's done to touch your heart, I invite you now to bring it forward to the altar and to once again remember um, that uh, Jesus began a work in you, in us, that he's going to bring to completion. Uh, the fulfillment of all things, the reconciliation of all people, and the community of God um, who is transformed into the image of his selfless love. That's what we're here doing. So, friends, the table is set, and everybody here is welcome. <laughs>